Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor from Radio Times and this is View From My Sofa, the podcast where every week I sit down with the stars of TV to talk about all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch? And who do they watch with? Expect fascinating insights into my celebrity guests' TV habits. What shows do they binge? What do they snack on? What do they loathe? And who really controls the remote on their sofa? This week's guest is Louis Theroux, the godfather of the immersive documentary. Over 24 years of programme making, Louis' trademark style has remained the same. Charming, bookish and always direct. In this episode, he talks to me about how he wanted to be a sitcom writer, his guilty secret of watching his own documentaries, and why lockdown and spending more time with his family has changed his outlook on life. Louis, hello and welcome to View from My Sofa. Hello, thank you for having me. That is quite all right. Let's start with what is the view from your sofa and talk me through your living room setup. I want detail. Well, the view from my sofa involves looking across the front room at a flat screen TV on a, a, wall, a wall that's surrounded by books. And I guess it's a sort of, it's it, it's a it's a room that's slightly separated from other parts of the house so you can actually feels like you're in a little in a sanctum you can enjoy the tv like if in another house in another time it might have been a library it feels quiet and it feels like a, a, a place that's dedicated to relaxation it's away from the hubbub and and and, and so i you know if, if my wife and i are so minded we could just relax there and watch our programs and feel like we're we're in our own space and what have you been enjoying watching recently on telly? Well, I, 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 um, I've been binge watching. I don't get as much time for this. is so boring for somebody who works in TV to say like, I don't get as much time to watch as much TV as I'd like. But for the last, I would say month or so, my wife and I, her name's Nancy, so I just call her that. Shall I, Nancy? <laughs> We've been watching the series Better Call Saul which, as many of your listeners will know, is a spin-off and prequel series from Breaking Bad, the, the legendary series about Walter White becoming a huge meth manufacturer and criminal kingpin. And this is, and Better Call Saul follows his lawyer, who, who is sort of roguish Jimmy McGill, who, who takes up the name Saul Goodman. So that, yeah, that's what we've been watching mainly. Who generally controls the remote in your house? Well, the thing about the remote is it's almost got a mind of its own. Like the remote goes missing quite a lot. So it definitely, whoever's in the room first controls it and holds it. And it's really annoying. I've, you know, I've got three children aged 16, 14 and seven. And the most common thing that you'll hear in the TV room is where's the remote, right? Where have you left the remote? The poor remote also gets really, because there's often little fits of angst, like I'm not going to stop watching TV or, and then the, the remote's got tape on it from being flung around. And it's a replacement remote from a previous remote that just gave up the ghost due to ill, due to ill use. <laughs> but um, it's usually stuffed behind a cushion or, or, an, or under a bean bag, And then who, if my seven-year-old's in there, he'll be watching YouTube 
and um, he'll have the remote literally in his hand so that no one can say, you know, hey, listen, time's up. You need to uh, come and have your breakfast or put your pajamas on or whatever, whatever it happens to be. So there's a lot of wrestling over the remote. I, I tell you who doesn't control the remote is me. But other than that, it's whoever else is in the room. When you get the chance to watch telly, do you watch a lot of documentaries? I watch a lot of documentaries, but it's almost like something that I, I can't really inflict them on the greater family. Like the, my needs seem to be quite far down the list of you know what gets to be shown on TV. So my documentary watching takes place very often on my computer, you know, in the kitchen or in the dining room or in my study or on my phone. I've been known to watch a documentary on my lap, on my computer, while in the front room, just to be companionable while the rest of the family is watching Love Island or um I don't know, what was it? The circle or not that I, I don't not that I don't enjoy those programs, but I've got because my because I'd like to you know, because for work and also personal reasons I want to catch up on what's happening with documentaries. I can't, I don't always have time to, you know, it's a big commitment investing in Love Island and that's a lot of hours in the week. It is. And I'm, I know I would love it, but I've also got things I have to catch up on. So I tend to watch documentaries when the rest of the family's watching Love Island. Do you sit around and watch your own work? Not as a, I mean, look, my work requires me to sit around watching it quite a lot. So, you know, in the edit and then, I mean, that goes without saying, doesn't it? So watching endless cuts and reworkings of sequences and so but then in turn as sort of um as a as pleasure i've got a guilty secret which is that sometimes if i've had a few drinks and this happened more often in lockdown i might look at some of my old programs on iplayer just to sort of be reminded of a time and a place that feels quite foreign and also to see with a bit of distance because you get so stuck in the woods with um, the process of putting a documentary together, just the the painstaking restructurings and, 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 the, and, the, and the rewriting of the voiceover and just the, the, the whole process is quite painstaking and painful and Although pleasurable as well. And then with distance to go back and see how they hold up and to be pleased to see that maybe something still is a rewarding watch or an enjoyable watch. Um, that, 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 I don't know why, but after a few drinks, I quite like to do that <laughs> on rare occasions, not often. Okay, I now want to take you back in time and return to your childhood. Uh, so you were born in Singapore in 1970. Your father is the novelist Paul Theroux and your mother Anne Castle had a successful career as a journalist and broadcaster at the BBC World Service and you were raised in London with your older brother. What were you like as a child? I was um, I, 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 I was quite an anxious child but I was also a sort of cheeky, rambunctious child. So I had these two sides to my personality of being not exactly a troublemaker, but a little bit of a comedian, a little bit of a sort of just sort of in a benign way, mischievous or just enjoying teasing or just enjoying a little bit of chaos, but then, but then riddled with anxieties about 
about life, you know, whether I would ever, you know, when I was small, whether I would ever grow up and be able to read or I, I, I remember for a while being anxious about maypole dancing, which was something they did at the school that I went to, the primary school in South London. And it just seemed the class above was doing it the year above. And I thought, I'll never be able to do that. And and I think I still have a bit of that quality of anxiety. But um, so, but I think I was a fairly, uh, I think I was, you know, out, fun loving, outgoing and, 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 and an avid TV watcher as well. I mean, that's what I feel like I was like. I mean, what I was like from the outside, God knows. What was your first TV memory? Well, when I was, um, I would have been probably four or maybe even three. I, I, I remember being at home and, and for some reason, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of daytime TV, but Crown Court was a a series. It was odd. I looked it up recently. It was kind of, it used members of the public. It was some kind of courtroom drama type series where they'd render a verdict on something. I can't really, I, the format and the grammar are hard, are hard to really understand in hindsight. But what I recall is that my au pair at the time told me that even though we could see the people on the TV, that they couldn't see us. And I remember being quite surprised <laughs> by that. It seemed a counterintuitive fact that it should be a, a kind of a one-way view. And then, um, of course, later on, I realised that that was correct. Yeah, I definitely remember having something similar. I think that's all children. There's either that kind of wanting to save something from inside the television or having the fear that they're watching you as you're watching them. Yeah, which would make perfect sense in a way. What did you grow up watching? You know, what kind of series mark your childhood? Well, I mean, how long have you got? Like, I, I watched so many different series over different parts of my life. Like, I, when I got home from school, I would just watch whatever was on. There was BBC One had children's TV from around four till six p.m. and there was, you know, Blue Peter, most famously, News Round, The Clangers, or you know, all of those were in different ways formative. John Noakes, who was the most famous Blue Peter presenter of his time was uh, was a danger man, and and hit some of his feats, like climbing Nelson's column, while just sort of seemingly just roped to this jerry-rigged series of ladders, and then and then clambering up, and it's, it's still it's on YouTube if you if you ever minded to look it up. It's an amazing piece of death-defying television. Later on, um, well, Jim will fix it. Are we still allowed to? mention that that you're that's less easy to find nowadays but like everyone i was sort of beguiled by the premise which was that the nation's children's wishes would be granted by a fixer and then sort of vaguely troubled or at least intrigued by the weirdness of the presenter who is jimmy savile later revealed as a serial sexual predator top of the pops i loved ken and then kenny everett I should mention Record Breakers as well, for some reason. Another BBC fixture which had Roy Castle presenting and Norris McWhorter in the role of officiator of the records. Kenny Everett was special because he had that chaotic comedic energy and he was one of the first people I saw on TV who, who seemed to reveal the aspects of how it all worked. Like he'd pull the cameras in directions and show the behind-the-scenes elements 
of the sort of the wires and the rigging and the set. And, you know, I think we in TV sometimes forget how fresh and, and weird it is to viewers at home to be reminded that there's this sort of plumbing and guts of the process that's kept off screen. Yeah. And, and, and to see that as a child on Kenny Everett's video show, I remember thinking, wow, it, it just it, it landed with a kind of revelatory power that, that there was a sort of honesty about the pro- process that he was showing. It, well, the fact that he was showing it, and later on that informed some parts of the TV that, that I would make, you know, the idea that it's always somehow refreshing or a sort of, it gives you a jolt when, as a viewer, you are shown, even if it's just the sound recordist or a boom dipping into shot mm. or something going slightly wrong, some element of the process jumping the tracks is a uh, it's a wonderful storytelling it's sort of coup de théâtre a way of, of 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 sort of grabbing the audience by the lapels and getting them to pay attention did you ever when you were watching television envision yourself on that and it doesn't have to be in childhood but maybe during your teenage years was that something that you thought maybe I'd like to be on screen you know i i used to write into blue peter whenever they had a competition and and, you know, try and get my entries on. And obviously that didn't happen. And I wrote to Jim will fix it. I, I never sort of saw myself as a presenter or, you know, as much as I admired John Noakes, I'd never thought, well, maybe one day I could be like John Noakes. And even as far, you know, as far along as in my late teens, when I was thinking about jobs, I, I, I never imagined that being on TV might be something that I'd consider, which I think probably is the right impulse, right? I'm always a bit suspicious about people who come to me and say, young people is like, oh, I want to be on TV like you. I want to be a presenter. And I think, well, that's not a good start, you know? Well, you know, if you said, like, I want to explore this amazing subject because I'm fascinated by it, or I want to make programs about these things, that's maybe... Um, the way to think about it. So I, I came into TV almost by accident. I, I, I really, I wanted to write for TV. And in fact, I was living in America uh, when I, after I left university, I have a US passport through my dad and I, I was working for magazines and also freelancing in New York. But my dream really was to write for television and in particular to write for a sitcom like Friends or Larry Sanders or, or, or maybe The Simpsons, or I, I really wasn't that fussy. I just, I, I knew that I felt like TV was in a golden age and, and, and I felt as though it, was, it, it would be, if I could measure up in TV, I felt like it would be really, it would sort of speak to, it would sort of con, confirm that I, maybe I had something, you know, that I was able to write and connect with people in, through my writing and write funny things, which I hoped that I was able to, like, through print, but TV felt like a more vigorous, wider-spreading medium. Anyway, um, that was how I ended up getting hired on Michael Moore's TV Nation in 1994, was I went along hoping to be a writer or a researcher, and then he he suggested that I should be a presenter. Yes, I I went back and watched some of the clips yesterday, and we're going to come on to talk about that. But firstly, I just want to take you back, because you did kind of mention it there, but when you were at school... You became a boarder at Westminster School and that's also where you befriended Adam Buxton and Joe Cornish and you made sketches and I wondered if that was perhaps your first 
kind of induction into writing comedy and exploring that side of your personality and the kind of theatrics of that? Well, yeah, yes and no. Like, I, I definitely wrote little things that I thought were funny, even as a child, like eight, nine, ten years old, I'd occasionally just get the urge to write little comic books or, or, or spoof newspapers. And then with my brother and a couple of friends, we'd sometimes record little radio shows. But when I was at school and I met Adam and Joe, that they, they took it to the next level. Adam was an early adopter of, of video and, the, you know, like, well, we'd, we'd all sort of grown up on Monty Python and I, I was, I'd been a big fan of the goodies and then the young ones. And then <laughs> that, that whole culture of sort of, I suppose what later became alternative comedy and sort of, yeah. So, and they were just, and they, they took, they were much more natural, nat, sort of naturally gifted at improvising sketch comedy, but I, do my best to kind of keep up with them and and then yeah adam recording it and then sometimes editing it and just that that was i don't know it wasn't as though oh i thought this will lead somewhere or but it it it, it, it i kind of felt like uh, yeah they just they were so good at it and it it felt almost like this was the beginnings of something. I don't know. It's hard to, you know, because you're looking back on it and obviously we know, like I went on to make documentaries. They went on to make sketch comedy and then direct movies and, and be, a, be comedians. And, and, and so it, I don't want to sort of read that back into the past too much, but I just remember thinking, wow, they're so talented and so funny and that this must surely be, and they had a sense of mission about where they were going. Like it didn't make me think, Oh, this is, if anything, it was the opposite. I was like, these guys are going somewhere. Like they're, 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 they're going to, and they had a whole plan of, of for, for kind of media domination. Like Joe had all his movies planned. Like I, I'm going to make all these movies and he'd written screenplays. And Adam had a plan for how he was going to make television or maybe be a TV presenter. And, and I just was happy to sort of enjoy the, the parade. Do you know what mm. I mean? As, a, as yeah. an onlooker, but I didn't really know how, how I was I had no clue how how I would be, um, w- what my working future might look like. Yeah. So when did you get the idea to go into journalism? Was it when you were at Oxford? And I know that you did a bit of student journalism there. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I went to university and then I wrote the odd uh, article and movie review for the student publications and I, and they were, and people were like, oh, that was really funny. Oh, that was really good. And I, that sort of opened my eyes that, um, well, maybe that, that, that's something I could do. Maybe I could, maybe I could write funny little articles or, and, 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 and it wasn't, I didn't sort of think, oh, oh, therefore I'll be a journalist. If I'm, if I'm totally honest, uh, having a, a writer for a father at some level, I think I knew that I was supposed to be a writer. And, and I think my dad would have loved it if I'd been a literary novelist and, a, and a, or, you know, basically had taken up the same job that, that he did. And if he even said to me once or twice, he said, Lou, I, I see it in you. you you're a writer. I, you know, your letters and, you know, the way you write, I, I, you, you've, you've, got, you've got it. He's American, by the way. That's why I'm doing that accent. And um, so 
And I thought, well, yeah, maybe I do, but and 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 I should be writing novels. And then I'd I'd read about other novelists or, or you know great literary figures and like how they'd written novels when they were fifteen or sixteen, juvenilia. So occasionally I think I better start writing my novel soon. And there was some part of me that also thought, well, I don't think this doesn't feel very natural. Like I don't really, I clearly I'm not writing any novels. I'd write the odd poem, but I don't think any of them were up to much. So uh, when I left university, I was sort of thinking, well, I, I, I guess I, at some point I should become a, some sort of literary writer, but I'm going to avoid doing that for now by doing something that I'm, I know I can do, which is do journalism. So, so yeah, with the springboard of having a few cuttings from my university days, I, 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 um, I just went to newspapers and magazines. I wrote to them once I was in America and said, can I come and work for you for free for a bit and, and learn the ropes? And, and then I ended up in San Jose, California as a writer. And that was my first job in journalism. Yeah. And let's go back now to when you were working on TV Nation. And I wonder, how did that shape you as the journalist you became later? Well, I suppose, okay, so Michael Moore took a huge leap of faith uh, when he hired me at TV Nation, because I had no TV experience. And he was, he was the host of a a network, it was on NBC, a network American TV show. Like, that's a big deal. Like, even now, like the idea of like, me being on a network show in America, it seems like quite impressive. And, um, and I think it was, it was my lack of qualifications that appealed to him. I think he saw it, you know, he wanted to, he was a disruptor and he wanted a kind of TV that would be different to the normal TV. And, and I think those are values that I learned from him and to some extent have attempted to make part of my working habits. Mm. So his attitude, and he would say this, was like, you should work as though you're never going to have another job in television. So, you know, if you were ever arrested while making a segment, you know, for, say, being at a gun rally and it all, and then them getting annoyed with you and you're kicked out and the police come, he said, if you're ever arrested, then you should take that as a good thing. That should be a feather in your cap. And, and the idea of just... Um, just bre- breaking rules, bre- breaking rules of television, or, or just taking a kind of a no holds barred approach to television. And in small ways, rules he had were like using documentary techniques as opposed to normal TV techniques. So in normal TV, typically you would arrive somewhere off camera, like unload, set up a spot mm. for the interview, do the interview, and then pack the cameras away, say bye-bye, and leave. And Michael's approach was, when you arrive, you're already filming. And when you knock at the door, you keep filming. Everything's handheld, no lights, and just keep going until something surprising or unexpected happens and capture all those elements of the encounter that feel unpredictable or, or, or that feel more honest or unmediated. So not always, but to some extent, those are things I still do. I certainly still have that urge to expand the frame of what the viewer sees so that there's moments of surprise and moments of, of unpredictability. And then I think um, that attitude of just bringing a kind of, and this, I don't want to say this in a way that sounds weird, but he had a dedication, like he, he was definitely dedicated to something bigger than television. Like his attitude was, 
he was a, he was a kind of committed uh, democratic socialist, and his attitude was like, "We're trying to make the revolution happen." Like, you know, in a sense, we are trying to effect change in our lifetime by bringing about a more equitable, more socialistic um, society. Like, for me, it's about making it more than normal television. Like, I'm not in this job to try and just stay in the job. I'm in the job to sort of dedicate myself to some kind of storytelling that feels honest. And I feel as though the moment the urge to stay in the job comes ahead of the urge to tell the truth about something and keep myself interested, then, then there'll be, there'll be a problem if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, So, so, and, and yeah, so, so Michael was really, yeah, he was really formative and, and, and actually also, that need for a, a like that TV should have something about it that is intense and crackling and on the edge of being awkward, you know, because I think that's what Michael also, that was what I almost responded more than anything to in Michael's work was the feeling that it was on the verge of slightly going tits up in a good way. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about how you choose your subjects and especially so after that you went on and the BBC commissioned Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends and I know that there was a kind of anxiety or a stress about they'd commissioned a kind of 50 minute hour long program mm-hmm. and four of them and you were like whoa let's let's see how the first one goes and they said to you something along the lines of you're obviously new to TV because you need to take what you can get. Yeah. But I want to talk to you about the subjects because you know, in in the most layman's terms, you have an interest in people who live life on the fringes of society, you know, stories that aren't necessarily f- front and focus, basically. How do you find subjects that interest you? And how do you keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on in, in all of these places? Well, I, you know, I think there's just things I've always been interested in which are sort of just part of who I am, subjects that are filled with uh, either a, uh, some some feeling of taboo, of 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 angst, of of being maybe even disreputable or controversial. Subjects that involve like I I just always have been fascinated by dimensions of life that feel confusing and conflicting and bizarre right and and obviously and and and, or even poisonous and toxic like when i was studying history like i tended to be most interested in you know historical epochs that involved crime or 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 cruelty like that you know studying fascism under mussolini or 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 the third reich and and i think uh, or warfare or, or or just man's inhumanity to man and i think later on i just had an appetite for you know reading books of true crime when i read truman capote's in cold blood it was a kind of revelatory moment or reading kind of countercultural literature books by people like william burroughs or adam, there was a writer who's dead now called adam parfrey who compiled um just really dark and twisted accounts of of people who lived on the edge in ways that are kind of deeply upsetting and 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 horrific and and actually you know my parents to some extent took a part in that like you know there'd be books around the house about crime about um you know whether it was dennis nielsen or or 
the Yorkshire Ripper or, mm. you know. So that was part of my mindset. That was just part of my mental furniture. And then when I had my series, it seemed perfectly, you know, the first segment I made on TV, it should be pointed out, which, which was for Michael Moore, was about millennial groups, one of whom were a neo-Nazi outfit that imagined all the races would be sent to different planets. And as awful as it is to say, that was that was my moment of TV. It was like a kind of hugely, oh, I say hugely, but it was, a, it was my TV baptism. It was the moment where I thought, okay, I think I can do this. I think I can do this job because I was talking to these two neo-Nazis about their end time scenario that involved you know, racial segregation. And it was so ludicrous and, and, and so weird and also so so nasty. And yet the the clash of that versus the kind of the strange sense I got that they wanted to be friendly to me created a really intriguing cultural sort of mix as a story. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think when I made my series, I just thought, well, I, I wanted to have that, a flavor of that sense of um, forbidden culture. And so the first two we made, the first one was about survivalists in idaho and montana and the second one was about the porn industry in california and i thought well you know and it seems to me like that that is what's interesting i don't want to make something about um amateur um model boat enthusiasts do you know what i mean or um or indeed like it's not that it's not valid but bird watchers or 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 join um leonardo dicaprio on the set of his new movie like that's fine, but I, I, I want to make something that's about people who are just deep in the their in their own soul, or like sort of dealing with the things that are of most importance, or, or the things that run deepest in 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 our condition as as a human species. And I think your qu- other question was to do with maintaining any sort of relevance. But these are evergreen subjects, yeah. you know. And, and I I think that the reason people can still watch programs I made. 20 or 25 years ago, if they're not too troubled by my wardrobe, which I will allow um, was quite odd in hindsight of my oversized leather jacket and my strange hair and glasses. But, but the, the, but the actual encounters and the nature of the themes that we were dealing with are totally still relevant and intriguing. And I think, you know, those subjects that take you to the heart of who we are, whether it's crime, cults, mental health, the sex industry, those will always be interesting. And they, I, I think, probably will always be part of how we exist as a species. When you go into an interview, and I'm I'm keen to kind of get into your mindset for this, I know that you say you go into these interviews and there is always the line of you are the journalist and this is the story and you're trying to get to the truth. But I wonder, A, if you feel a duty of care towards your interviewees, and B how you kind of toe that line and, and get them to open up to you, but without getting friendly, if if you like. Well, first of all, like, I think being friendly is okay. Yeah, it's not friends. To be friends, sometimes you become friends, but your job when you're there isn't to be a friend. I think friendliness is totally valid and fine. Like I remember, it's odd, but I remember being at San Quentin Prison and the guards had the same attitude because I noticed that it was a lot of a... Um, You'd expect like guards and inmates to be at loggerheads, but it's in the nature of like things running, needing to run smoothly yeah. that they sort of have to rub along with each other, and there's a friendly relationship. And I said to the guards, like, are "You are you a friend of this guy who you're keeping under lock and key twenty four seven? And the guard said, 
no, we can't be friends, but we can be friendly. So maybe mine's a similar, I mean, I don't like to think of myself as a prison guard, but it's a similar thing. Like you're out there, you're, tr- you're trying to build trust. You're trying to build an atmosphere of um, friendliness that will lead to the person you're talking to kind of speaking unselfconsciously feeling that they can express what they what, what's really in their hearts and then you know sometimes if it's someone who's you know more uh, you know th- th- there's a sort of range like there's vulnerable people involved with mental health issues for whom a friendly and supportive atmosphere is a, is absolutely appropriate and then you've got people who are promoting hatred and, and toxic political views or advocating criminal acts and that, that you know, in that situation you're not hoping you're not being supportive you're, you're, you're going to be more challenging but you know but not in a rude way you're just trying to be robust and, yeah. and you know in that context friendliness is maybe not appropriate but a kind of a, a, a sort of i suppose appropriately sort of respectful or at least kind of civilized kind of engagement is okay and i think your question i think was about how how do you how how do you get the most out of your co- contributors or the people you interview? And I think it's 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 really the most basic things you would imagine, which are be prepared, be focused, listen to what they're saying, and challenge where appropriate. And you know, try and walk that line between having in your head what it is that you're leading towards, but also listening for anything that might come out that's um, that's surprising but intriguing and needs picking up on. And also the things that your parents probably told you to do with, um, you know, a, a, be punctual, offer to take your shoes off if you're going inside, read body language, think about what's likely, you know, the, 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 you know, politeness and good manners go a long way. And I think, uh, you know, it's not a technique, it's just the way you should go through life, but actually it turns out can also apply in, in, in a journalistic setting. Yeah. I want to move on now to talk about your new series. So firstly, over lockdown, you launched a podcast series grounded with Louis Through, which saw you kind of chat to high profile guests that you'd been longing to talk to. Now you're releasing Louis Through interviews on BBC Two, which sees you explore your guests' lives and careers in a very personal and intimate way. You've got everyone on the show from Stormzy to Judy Dench to Bear Grylls. So I wanted to ask you, has your own fame and success as a broadcaster and quite rightly the reputation that you've accrued of being a good journalist granted you more access to those at the very height of fame? I think it's helped. I think it's helped. I think I would have struggled uh, uh, earlier in my career. I mean, I think earlier, 20 years ago, I wouldn't really have known how to... um, how to go about approaching a series like this. And I also think in some ways, as good as good as it was in many respects, that kind of take no prisoners attitude that Michael Moore had, I do think there are limitations. And this isn't putting it on Michael Moore. It might have been how I interpreted that. But that um, if you're not careful, like there's an us and them attitude that can set in, which is is like, let's go out there and 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 basically do whatever it takes to get what we need. And I, as I've got older, I've grown maybe a little bit more nuanced in how I view that journalistic transaction. And I, and I see that if you're talking to a celebrity, the idea is not to absolutely turn them over. Like, really, if you can approach people who you're intrigued by and who you feel have something interesting to say, 
then just go into it almost as a cooperative endeavor where, yeah. you know, they, they're opening up to you, but you're also saying like, we, we want to get the best out of this, right? You know, we, I want to talk to people who I feel like have, have something valid, but something about them that I like, or I feel it deserves a wider hearing or, or, or maybe something I want to unpick a little bit and to do it in such a way that it's, um, it's revealing but not hopefully overly exposing, if that makes sense. I, I, I'm not keen for this to be painful for the people that I do interviews with. And, and, and I suppose maybe in some ways that's obvious in most contexts and, and, and coming off grounded. I mean, it's been a long journey over yeah. 25 years to sort of arrive at this point that mm. involves sort of going from doing programs about, you know, cults and the sex industry to doing programs about prisons and crime to doing programs about mental health and then, and then finally doing Grounded, where th- those were friendly, long-form chats that involved yeah. sometimes moments of challenge and feistiness and little spicy bits of conflict, fractiousness on occasion. But that wasn't what I was looking for. I was just looking for a respectful and hopefully friendly uh, sort of revealing encounter, but, you know, meeting of minds. And um, so, so that's that, that's really the spirit of uh, of of what's behind. Um, that Louis through interviews. So me being me, like they, they obviously some of them are doing it because they know who I am and they've got that you know they're fans of what I've done or they know the, the documentary. Certainly, Stormzy, his team came to us a few years ago saying like Stormzy likes Louis's programs and he's wondering if there's a documentary or something or an interview that they could do together. And then so yeah, in that setting, I think me having a bit of a profile and being a known quantity. Mm. Um, they all said they liked my programs, actually. I don't know whether or not, you know, they, it, it was true. Like, I didn't like to say, like, oh, yeah, really, which ones? <laughs> but um, if, if I take them at face value, then that was part of why they did the program. What drew you to the long-form interview? Was it over lockdown and being kind of in the same place and then that being kind of where you could turn to? Yeah, I, we had nothing else we could do. Like, it was literally three days after they cancelled all the flights and I was supposed to fly out and do some programs in America. And we started saying, well, what do we do now? And my uh, executive producer, Aaron, Aaron Fellows said, well, what about a podcast? And, um, and, and, and it was as simple as that. Like, and everyone's at home, we've all got computers and we could talk to each, I could talk to people at home and hopefully they, maybe they'll be available. And then after that, Patrick Holland at BBC Two said, well, maybe you could do something like that on TV. And I thought that was probably crazy because podcasts and TV are utterly opposed like in their just every, you know, everything about how they take place. You know, one is a sort of ambient form of long form audio mm. and the other is a sort of demands your full attention on a screen in, in a burst. And um, but we kept thinking about it and then. I, I think the breakthrough moment was thinking, well, maybe if there's a master interview uh, that takes you through the show, that you sit down for two or three hours and get that. And then alongside that, you have little moments, breakout moments of actuality, then maybe you've got something. And so th- that was what we did. And, and I should also mention that in lockdown, I became aware that it was quite nice being around my family more and that they were growing up. My kids were growing up. And so this was a way of working that would mean I could be at home a little bit more, not, not on the road quite so much. So that was part of it. And I want to just ask, 
you know, you've always been very open about being a rap fan. You've recently become TikTok viral. Was Stormzy one of your ultimate guests? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was a fan of Stormzy's. I'm a fan of, of many of the UK grime and drill artists, but Stormzy in particular, and that track Shut Up, which I, I think I said to him, I can't remember if it's in the cut, but I remember seeing Shut Up like the, 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 as, a, as a track, but also the video in his red track suit. Yeah. And, and just, you hear those lyrics and you know that he's someone who's speaking completely from the heart. Like there's not an ounce of pretense. He's talking about things in his life like, when he's talking about uh, some person said he looks like a backup dancer and he's really miffed about it. And then you think like, wow, that, re- I, that definitely happened. And, yeah. and, and, and that's true for his lyrics. I mean, rap in general, grime, but, but Storms in particular, his life is laid out in his lyrics and his artistry is extraordinary. And if you've ever seen him on stage, he's a phenomenon. And the way he makes music and the way he, he just effortlessly can spin his life into verses I think it's amazing. And so to meet him was a, was a huge thrill. And, you know, I remember going back to 1993 when I worked at a magazine called spy and I got, and I remember to the rapper I most admired at that time probably was called Rakim. He's still around, but he was really big then of Eric B and Rakim. And, and I, I thought, oh, how can I interview Rakim? And I just ended up calling up his PR or his label. And they said, you know, Rakim's just split up from Eric B uh but you know you can do an interview if you want and think like oh my god and i interviewed uh rakim and i actually broke the story about rakim and eric b breaking up and it was in uh i think it was called vibe magazine and so to go from that you know to to where i am now where i got to spend three days more or less with stormzy and but i'll never hopefully i'll never lose that childlike enthusiasm you know it's a thrill it's a pressure too to meet people you really admire because you don't want to disappoint them especially if they if they've expressed admiration for you too but um it all went smoothly and so yeah it's you know it was it was great and it's a very good program thank you i'm going to take you to the final part of our interview i'm going to pay you three theme tunes and if you could guess which ones they are that would be fab this is number one Any ideas? Um, I have no freaking clue. <laughs> is it something, is it, um, what's the one that Phil and Holly are on? No, it's, it's not. Got, it's, it's got a sort of good morning Britain, wake up UK. I'll say it's changing rooms. No, it's Grange Hill from the 90s. Oh, come on. Why didn't you give me Grange <laughs> Hill in the 80s? Better, 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 boo. Oh, no, that's Countdown. <laughs> <laughs> How does Grangeville in the eighties had um that one I could have done. I'm sorry. You gave okay. me the wrong vintage. I hope you get this one. Black Adder. That's easy. And the third and final one. I don't even have... I'm going to have to... I'll guess. That is, um... 
sapphire and steel. No, it's Breaking Bad. Is it? Well, see, what, that's what happens when you skip the, you skip the yes, titles. that's what I do too. Yeah. That's the glory of Netflix. God, I wouldn't even, even now you've said it, I don't recognise it. Never mind. It's been a few years since I watched it. Anyway, Louis, thank you so much for joining me on View From My Sofa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to View From My Sofa. If you want to hear more from Radio Times, don't miss our smart TV podcast in which we tell you what shows to watch this week and one to avoid. And if you want to read more interviews with the stars of the small screen, don't forget to pick up your copy of Radio Times. It's out every Tuesday.